0: We've been working our way, our way through the Gospel of Matthew and we've reached chapter 5. It's the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus lays out his manifesto. Now, in a UK election manifesto, it's a, a publication issued by a political party before a general election and it contains the set of policies that the party stands for and would wish to implement if elected to govern. Jesus' manifesto is that set of attitudes and actions, that outlook and inner character that Jesus wants his followers to have and exhibit. It's the guiding character that Christians will love and live and die for. And he lays out this manifesto actually throughout the whole Bible and he expounds them in these clear and challenging statements in the Sermon on the Mount. It is actually his own character and he examples them all in his own life, ministry and atoning death on the cross and his bodily resurrection from the dead. He continues to exhibit this character in his intercession for us at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Now, though though these characteristics seem hard for us, even impossible to live up to, yet by faith in Jesus, the sinless Son of God, we may be given a new heart, have our slate of sins wiped clean and live a life pleasing to him, guided by his word and his Holy Spirit. And today, as we look at this passage, Jesus challenges our heart attitude towards God, towards ourselves and our friends and others, and even towards our enemies, Let's see what Jesus has to say. I've got five short points, and that was the first of them. The next point is the longest one. Verse 53, Jesus speaking. Again you have heard it said, that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So Jesus is talking about oaths. What's an oath? Well, the, dic- the dictionary definition is a solemn calling upon God to witness the truth of what one says. That's an oath. So it's either testifying that something is true or testifying that you shall certainly perform a future action. Now, what did Jesus' hearers know? Jesus reminds them in verse. 33, and it's a mixed group of his Jewish followers and Jewish unconverted people, he reminds them of what they certainly knew. Oaths are binding. Le- Leviticus 19.12 says, And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. This is what they had heard said of old. Oaths are binding. That is why you shall not swear falsely, especially in the Lord's name. Lying has always been wrong in the sight of the Lord. You shall not lie, Exodus twenty sixteen. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. Lying has always been wrong, but the Jews had fallen into bad habits. So Jesus starts by reminding them of a wonderful fact. He reminds them of the glory of God. He reminds them who God is using the words of Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2 with which we opened the service this morning. Heaven is God's throne, and the earth is God's footstool. Just consider that. The greatness and glory of God is displayed to us in that verse, isn't it? Heaven is God's throne, and the earth is his footstool. Who can compare to God? Well, nobody and nothing compares to the glory the greatness and the goodness of God. And God's glory must be uppermost in our thoughts, especially when we come to worship like we are here today, because ultimately all, all, all is for God's glory. That's why this universe and we exist, what exists only exists, to bring glory to God and that's why he made us and everything else and we can see the rain falling on the the just and the unjust at the moment can't we it's it's fallen quite a lot in these last few hours but the Jews they knew this about God that he was glorious and he transcended all the glory of human beings and even the glory of creation. They knew this, and they knew they could not and should not swear by God to improve the believability of their promises. Eh? They They knew they shouldn't swear by God, but they wanted to improve the believability of their promises, so they started swearing by other great and glorious things. Uh, And Jesus tells them off for it, "Don't, don't swear by heaven and don't swear by earth. In the first place, these inanimate objects cannot act as witnesses to men's actions, can they? They're dead, there's no life in them. And secondly, the items that the Jews were often choosing in their oaths were not their own possessions. They belonged to God who had made them oaths are too often about glorifying the man who's making the oath when actually we should be glorifying God. Oaths are about glorifying man. Who can make the biggest oath, the most daring oath or boast? Who can pledge against their word the biggest and most valuable thing in their life? Sometimes you see in films or whatever. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on my children's life, people say. It's a sort of gambling, isn't it? It's a sort of top trumps that grown men play. And they certainly should not play that game with God's possessions. Isaiah 66, verse 2, All these things... My hand has made, says the Lord. There's an escalation, isn't there, in oaths? There's an escalation in what people swear by, especially when they fail to deliver on their promise the first time. What will you swear by next time to make your word stick or be believable to its hearers? And it's all too easy to become like a gambler trying to recoup his losses at the roulette table who keeps on doubling up the stake until, of course, eventually he's totally broke. These grand statements are there to make us look good and our promises credible. You know, would we make such an oath if we were? actually giving those items as hostages? Hostages that will be taken away from us when we weak, fallible humans fail to perform what we have sworn? Would we swear by our valuables so easily if they were forfeit if we didn't perform the oath? It's all about glorifying man these grand and great statements. But let's look at the situation as it actually is. We don't control or own these great items like heaven or earth. Rather, we should control and own our promises. We have to stop making wild and grand promises that are outside our power to fulfill we are to forsake giving these empty promises as it were wrapped up in fine expensive wrapping paper imagine at christmas wonderful present wrapped up under the tree and you open it there's nothing inside it's just the wrapping paper the temple is not ours to command and actually jesus reminds us in verse 36 that even the hair on our own heads is not ours to control. You cannot make one hair white or black, Jesus says. Well, in my case, I can't make them ginger again. We have no control over such things, do we? And Jesus is correcting the Jews in their thinking they've started to think that there are two types of oaths. Oaths to the Lord, which they cannot swear falsely, and other oaths, not sworn to the Lord, but say, sworn by the temple, which actually they don't necessarily need to keep. So they make an oath to the Lord, say to make a sacrifice to the Lord in thanksgiving. Well, yes, I'll certainly keep that one, I'll do that. But other oaths that they've made, well, perhaps I won't actually keep that one. And they think that a form of words makes a difference to the solemnity and binding nature of their promises. They've forgotten that every oath is to the Lord because he is our witness of our every word and thought and deed isn't he? He will judge us for those idle words, those empty promises, those unfulfilled vows, those falsely sworn oaths. He will judge us for the things we failed to perform that we should have done, just as he will judge us for the things that we actually did that we shouldn't have done. Your yes and no are just as binding an oath since they are said with the Lord God as the ever-present witness and he is your judge of your every action in the world to come. So remember, a simple yes or no will do and it is binding. Doesn't that fill you with terror that God has a perfect record of all our idle grand statements all our ruined promises our violated oaths a record of our broken vows and he will judge us for each and every one of them holding us to account the righteous judge will judge us sinners in righteousness. And who, who can stand against this record of wrongs? Doesn't this give you a contrite spirit? Doesn't this make us realise how poorly we keep God's law? What poor creatures we are. And doesn't this cause us to tremble at God's word? So Jesus has looked at earths and in doing so, he's displayed the glory of God and he's compared it to our own situation. And now in verses 38 to 42, he's gonna look at how we should be dealing with with others It's amazing, isn't it, the Word of God, when we read it? And I hope you do read it. Doesn't it measure us and find us wanting? Don't you find that? I often do. And these few verses here are a measuring line. They're a ruler put next to our attitudes and actions. And indeed, they've been put next to my attitudes and actions of this very week. And didn't I come up short, I have to admit. And in this passage, Jesus now tests how our hearts are regarding retribution, justice and mercy in dealing with friends and others. Verse 38, Jesus says, "'You have heard that it was said, "'an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Jesus is reminding them of what they know from Exodus 21, 24, uh, verses given by the Lord God to Moses at the very foundation, the time of the foundation of the Jewish nation. Now, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, this verse is not about demanding tit for tat. Rather, because violence all too often runs away with itself, an eye for an eye is about setting an absolute maximum limit to the demands of the injured party in disputes. But look at human nature. All too soon, this maximum limit set by God becomes the minimum acceptable to people who feel injured. People wanted their pound of flesh, they demand their rights. I've lost this, therefore he also must lose that. And soon, there's no place for mercy in their hearts and there's no place for God's justice. The Jews knew that God reserved the right of vengeance to himself, he would repay. Deuteronomy 32, 35 to 36 says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will vindicate his people and he will give justice concerning his servants and as long as the Jews had been a nation they'd known that as well Jesus here knew it but just like us they were bloodthirsty selfish impatient and Jesus challenges them and us not to get even Jesus is challenging us not to get even the Apostle Paul writes in Romans twelve seventeen, Repay no one evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. We are being challenged in our view of the righteousness of God in our view of the certainty of his word and the outcome of his judgment to come? Here's a question. Answer it in your own hearts. Do we truly believe that God will repay in full evildoers? Do we truly believe them? Well, if so, we don't need to do anything to them now, do we? He will repay. Have you got confidence in God and his justice? He will repay. In fact, for us to get satisfaction now and for God to inflict his righteous punishment later would be to overload that guilty person with with overload them with righteous retribution, wouldn't it? We're being challenged on the place of mercy in our hearts. You and I are to act with mercy and grace in the here and now. Now, what a challenge that is to us. When we think we've been wronged, all we want to do is dish out wrath and retribution while our blood is still hot and riled, don't we? I don't know about you, but this is a real challenge to me personally. And I need help from Jesus, the Son of God, to be forgiven in these situations, don't you? My natural reaction, when, when I've been aggrieved by somebody, my natural reaction is to get even and actually usually to get ahead but we have to show the mercy that our God is famous for. This is a very hard thing for us to do, but it's a clear commandment of the whole Bible. May God give us help to live up to his word. And Jesus rams home this situation by making us consider our response in four hard cases, in verses 39 to 42. So Jesus is saying we're to be gracious and we've got to be giving and caring, even in tough situations. Really, Jesus? Yes, really. Verse 39. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek Turn the other to him also. I find this to be a tough one. Whenever I've been slapped hard on my right cheek, my bile rises and I want to lash out. No, says Jesus. You have to remain self controlled. So self controlled, you can turn and offer the perpetrator. Your other cheek. What a challenge God's word sets. Yet Jesus himself and the apostles Peter, Paul and John demonstrated exactly this response and attitude. It may seem like a hard verse since you you may believe it's natural to defend yourself but Jesus himself went like a sheep to the slaughter and when reviled did not revile in return. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.19 For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God one endures grief, suffering and suffering wrongfully for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently but when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently this is commendable before God for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. That's that's tough teaching. We have to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter, he put this into practice and it's recorded there in Acts chapter 5, 40. When the Sanhedrin had called for the apostles, and it's talking about Peter and John. When the Sanhedrin had called for the apostles, and beaten them, the Sanhedrin commanded they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And those of us that have been with us as we've gone through Many other passages in Acts of the Apostles will see the Apostle Paul in very similar situations. Could we do the same? Could you? Could I do the same? Could I rejoice when beaten? Would I be in the prison at night in chains after a severe beating singing psalms and hymns? I don't know, but that's the challenge. That's the requirement put upon us. I could only do this if my heart had been truly changed by the word of God. I could only do it if I truly believe there's a righteous God in heaven. I could only do it if I'm certain that we survive our death and pass into another world and I could do it if I only believe that Jesus Christ is the righteous judge of all the living and the dead, dispensing justice. And I could only do this if I'd been changed completely and totally by the forgiving love and grace of God. Have you? That's what Jesus calls us to do in those four hard cases. And Jesus continues with this challenge about the realities in our hearts and nature. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your coat also. So you're not in that situation reacting on the instant, uh, perhaps with hot blood, but in perhaps a more considered thing, Somebody presents you with a a legal petition. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. And verse 42. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Perhaps a more frequent circumstance than some of the others. But it begs the question, how attached are you to your possessions? And how attached are you to your time in this life? Giving up our possessions to meet the challenges of verse 40 and 42 would be not that huge issue that it actually is if we truly believe that there's a next world a glorious world, and we will be part of it through the gift of God that was bought with Jesus' blood. An extra mile or two for someone else's benefit will not ruin our day or put us out completely if we see and understand what Jesus has done for us. If we see that glorious and lasting benefit of what Jesus has done for us, while we were still sinners. Now just think about this. Look. Who's, who's ever opened a newspaper? Who's ever watched the TV news? Isn't it obvious there's no justice in this world? With just five minutes perusing a newspaper. But we believe. Don't we? That everyone. And everything. Shall be brought into judgment. Judgment. The Lord will balance the books. He will repay, not us. And we prove the change in our thinking and the change in our hearts and the change in our state before God by our actions in these hard circumstances. We are to be as much like Jesus Christ as we can be in this world, especially in the hard situations, and act as a witness to the changing power of Christ's new life in us. May God give us the grace to make this stand when the time of testing comes. And now Jesus in verses 43 to 48, deals with a special class of others, our implacable enemies, and Jesus challenges us how we deal with them, Matthew 5:43. you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust for if you love those who love you what reward have you you do not even do not even the tax collectors do the same if you greet your brethren only what do you do more than others do not even the tax collectors do so therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect are we serious about our righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees, our practical righteousness. Do we wish to be holy and walk before God as Abraham, the father of all the Jews, was exhorted to in Genesis 17:1? I am the almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. If we're serious about that, we have to be like God, that is, godly, in our dealings with our enemies. Since the day of Moses, Leviticus 19, verse 18, commands us to love our enemies. However, nowhere in the Old Testament is it commanded to hate your enemy. Rather, Jesus Jesus isn't saying here, it was written, i.e. in the Old Testament, but he actually says, you have heard. It was the teaching of men, of Jewish tradition, to extend the word of God and make it actually of no effect by saying, love your neighbour, and then tacking on the rider to the end of it, but hate your enemy. And Jesus takes them back to the word of God, love your neighbour. And Jesus points out how in practice God treats his enemies. You know, God has power to instantly and completely overcome his enemies with overwhelming power, doesn't he? And yet he chooses not to do that. Rather, he chooses to be loving, kind, patient, long-suffering, and gracious to them. Can we do the same? Very difficult, isn't it? Love your enemies, Jesus says, because it's clear that God shows his love towards them and be tolerant of those who have declared themselves to be our enemies, just as God is towards those who are his enemies. Now, this is a real test. God does not treat his enemies according to his enemies' standards, but he treats them according to his own standards. Therefore, Jesus tells us we have to bless our enemies, do good to them, and pray for them. Indeed, it has always been so. In Proverbs, in the Old Testament, chapter 25, verses 21 to 2, it says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for so you will heap coals of fire in his head, and the Lord will reward you. Verses 46 and 47, if... We are only good to those who love us. How are we different from the rest of the world? How are we different from those who even deny God's existence? We wouldn't be. But Jesus says we must act the same way towards our enemies that God acts towards his enemies. He gives them life and every blessing. For instance, he gives them the sunshine and rain that make their crops grow so that they can feed themselves. But what about the bad things that these enemies have done? God will deal with them in his time, while we here are to show our love for them. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, as sinners we were enemies of God. While we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Where would we be if God had not shown his love to us, his enemies? We'd be lost and without hope. Where will our enemies be if we don't show them God's love? They'll be lost and without hope. And we have to demonstrate that changed heart and nature in us by emulating the character of God, showing love to our enemies. Verse 48, therefore be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. We've got to show the character of a a mature Christian by dealing with our enemies with love. Now the Sermon on the Mount is this election manifesto of being a Christian and it's all about the heart. Are you right inside? Then you'll be right outside. And the Sermon on the Mount teaches us much about Jesus. It is Jesus revealed. The Sermon on the Mount shows that he understands God's word, the Old Testament, in a way others never did. And actually the crowds recognised that he taught them as one having authority. And Jesus declares his words to be on an equal basis with the written word of God, as given to the prophets. He says in the passage we've considered, three times I say to you, his words are God's words. And Jesus wants this character change to occur in our hearts. He wants us to be wise men and women and build our life on his words. And let's think about it. We know now what his hearers didn't know then. We know about the crucifixion and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know about the atoning death of God's servants bringing many brothers to glory which all prove that Jesus is the Lord God in person. Let's face it, we we can't change our own hearts. Can the leopard change its spots? No. Isaiah 66.2 says this, Thus says the Lord, on this one I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Let us ask him, the Lord Jesus Christ, to make this change in each one of us. Amen.